Before we get started, first of all, just a reminder for all the men that this Saturday morning we're going to have our uh, <clears throat> monthly men's prayer breakfast, and this week, this time, we're going to have a special speaker. We do that every three or four months or so, and our special speaker is Rick Miller. Rick is a uh, <clears throat> representative in the Texas State House. He was elected a year ago, and I've known Rick and his wife, Babs, for a number of years. He spoke a couple of months ago, I think, for our <clears throat> morning session and um, uh, he's real informative. There are a lot of issues going on today, as I mentioned in the past, that we need to be informed about uh, legislatively. A lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes. A lot of stuff kind of gets pushed on us from, from various bureaucrats, and it's good to be informed and to know what's, what, is, uh, what is happening. Uh, Rick's a <clears throat> Naval Academy graduate. He was a fighter pilot, um, career uh, naval officer uh, before retired to the Houston area. He and his wife, Babs, are really strong believers, and I first met them. They've been going to pre-trib for, I don't know, 10 years or more, and uh, so they're they're real solid. They live down in the in the Sugarland area. And then the uh, second announcement is some of you may not, uh, may not have known them. Uh, we had a couple that came to the church for six months or a year. They live-streamed. They lived out near Magnolia. Uh, <clears throat> the man's name was Andy Young. Andy went to be with the Lord early yesterday morning, and uh, he was a relatively young guy, younger than me. That means he's just a baby. And uh, he had uh, grown up in somewhat legalistic Baptist household somewhere 10 or 12 years ago, got a hold of Arnold Fruchtenbaum, was listening to a lot of Arnold stuff, and then, then found out about uh, our ministry and started listening that way. And it <clears throat> turned out that he was a first cousin of my college roommate, but the f- his side of the family were the legalistic Baptists who wouldn't have anything to do with the the the, the other side of the family, which had which had gone to Baraka and were free grace. So it was kind of a uh, a funny deal like that. But uh, Andy's been real sick. He's been on our prayer list for a number of years, and he went to be with the Lord. So we need to be in prayer for his uh, wife, uh, Lucy. And uh, and just the, the funeral is going to be tomorrow afternoon up in Magnolia. I'm not doing the funeral. They, she's a Portuguese, and uh, so they've been they had a little Portuguese speaking church up in that area. So that Portuguese pastor is uh, covering things tomorrow. So anyway, that's that's the deal on that. Um, one other thing is there's a table out here in the fellowship hall, and when Vita Velasco was here, she brought a lot of material from uh, Stand with Us. This is. Excellent material. All the different things that they have are really excellent, informative, educational material related to issues in the Middle East. And, and along with that, I also had Connie send out a uh, an email this morning to an interview uh, on the Frank, Frank Gaffney's radio show last night with Carolyn Glick. And there's so much chatter. I, I don't know about you. I'm just I hate listening to the news, but I have to stay informed to some degree. And uh, Carolyn Glick is an American who made Aliyah to Israel. She's been in a couple of different administrations. She writes a weekly column uh, in the uh, Jerusalem Post. Very conservative, very good, very well-informed. And if you can listen to just a little bit of that, you'll probably want to listen to all of it, uh, analysis on what's going on with this the U.S.-Iranian agreement. And she sheds a lot of light on stuff that I didn't, didn't know about and wasn't familiar with that you don't get normally from the press here. So I encourage you to listen to that. Before we get started this evening, let's just take a few moments for silent prayer to make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening, and then let's go, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we're so thankful that we have you to come to, that you are the God who, whose everlasting arms holds us up. You sustain us. You strengthen us. You're overseeing our lives in such a way that we can relax and rest in you. And we know that whatever happens, that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to your purpose. Father, as we study this evening, we study in Paul's life, may we be encouraged because often we feel like things don't go quite the way we think they should go or the direction they should go. And we think maybe we've gotten off track and it's, it might seem to somebody in Paul's situation. And yet you are very much in control and you were giving Paul many opportunities to uh, proclaim the gospel and to witness uh, during this time, this two-year period between his his arrest in Jerusalem and the time that he finally left to go to go to Rome, and that's a great encouragement to us. So, Father, may we focus on the lesson tonight, and may God the Holy Spirit make these principles very clear to us. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. Open your Bibles to Acts. We are in Acts chapter twenty-three. Acts chapter 23, and this section in Acts 23 and 24, and some into 25, is has a certain amount of repetition in it, which indicates that God the Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention to these things because he's included them two or three times to make sure we, we get it. Uh, <clears throat> we'll start in Acts 22, 30. And the principle, the doctrinal principle that we see throughout this is if God is for us, who can be against us? We see a situation that we might face at some time where we are basically uh, surrounded by our enemies. Many times as I've read through this the last few days, I've thought about some of the Psalms where, where David talks about how he's surrounded by his enemies, and yet God is the one that, that protects him. God's the one that's his shield, his fortress. God's the one who sustains him. And God is the one who protects him. And this is a great, tremendous illustration of how God does that. It's, it's not overt in the sense of God performing miracles to protect Paul and, or to pull him out of a difficult situation, uh, in the sense of making it go away. And so often when we face testing, when we face, uh, adversity in life, we think that we just pray that God will remove it. And God wants us to stay under the pressure and in that uh, adversity situation so that we can learn to relax and trust him. And I, I, I thought about this, trying to put myself in Paul's place. Uh, it's hard to do that sometimes, but if you're surrounded, you're, there's plots against you to try to take your life, surrounded by people who uh, hate you and everything that you stand for, and these are people that you care about and people that you love and they've turned against you, which is the situation with Paul, we'll notice that when he addresses the Sanhedrin in chapter 23, uh, he says that he is identifies himself as a Pharisee. He says, I am a Pharisee. He doesn't say, I'm a Christian. He doesn't say, I'm something else. I'm a Nazarene. He's clearly that but he still sees that he has his core beliefs are the fundamental beliefs of the Pharisees. I'll explain what I mean by that a little later on, not in the legalistic, superficial hypocrisy form, but in the sense that the Pharisees, in a, in a strict doctrinal sense, believed in the reality of a personal God. They believed in physical bodily resurrection. They believed in angels and, and demons, and that the Torah was the 
uh, word of God. What they did with that was wrong, but those core beliefs were still core beliefs that that uh, the apostle uh, that the apostle Paul had. And in verse six of chapter twenty-three, he says, "Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee," and he identifies what he means by that specifically in terms of believing the for the uh, belief in the hope and the resurrection uh, of the dead. So here are these Pharisees, many of whom he probably, some of whom he trained, some of whom trained him, many of whom he knew very well, very and was very close to prior to his conversion to Christianity. And we also see in this episode that that the Jewish leadership is still looking at Christianity as a subsect of of Judaism. They don't see it as as a totally separate movement yet. That doesn't come for about 75 more years. They see it as a set of wacko uh, Jews that have gotten off the rails, but they still see see it as part of of, of Judaism, and they're trying to stomp it out. And so Paul's in this context of opposition where he's being uh, put under arrest by the Romans, by the Gentiles, and they're restricting his movements. And <clears throat> in the middle of this episode, <clears throat> the Lord is going to appear to him in verse 11 and say, Be of good cheer, Paul, for you have, as you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Why would the Lord appear to Paul to give him this, this reassurance if Paul wasn't feeling the pressure and the adversity of of the hostile situation. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that, that you have these kind of direct appearances of the Lord at times, uh, even in Acts, is because they don't have a completed canon of Scripture yet. We have a completed canon of Scripture, and we can go to promises and we can go to uh, many places and derive that, that strength and that comfort from the Scripture. And so Paul was in, in, in need of that. So as we look at these events in chapter, chapters 23 and chapter 24 and even into 25, one thing that we need to keep in as a sort of a framework for understanding this, when we ask this question, why does God the Holy Spirit give us so much of this information? I mean, if you think about this, that the arrest occur, the initial arrest uh, and the initial temple riot occurs halfway through chapter 21. He's uh, he's rescued and arrested by the by the Roman uh, uh, Kiliarch at, at verse 37 of chapter 21. Goes through the rest of 21, all of 22, all of 23, all of 24, and 25. And it's not until chapter 27 that he finally leaves Caesarea. And this this covers a period of two years. But when you think, go back and compare that the amount of verses given to this period of Paul's life and compare that to, for example, the first missionary journey or the second or third missionary journeys, which lasted, uh, the second and third especially, lasted a similar if not equal amount of time. And there, uh, We get a chapter or a chapter and a half describing those missionary journeys. So the Holy Spirit really uh, wants us to slow down and pay attention to what is happening uh, from the arrest in Jerusalem until he leaves to go to 
uh, go to Rome. So obviously the Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention to these details that in his view these are important. And we're reminded of 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that we may be equipped, thoroughly thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we just kind of slow down a little bit and look at what is happening. Now, at the, the, we're going to start with the last verse, <clears throat> the last verse of chapter 22, verse 30. This takes place, we can date it, because Luke is very precise as he goes through this description. He begins the next day. He's given a day-by-day um, uh, description of what Paul has been doing since he arrived to observe Pentecost. And so this can be tracked down to, uh, according to uh, Dr. Harold Honer's uh, in-depth chronology, this would be June the 3rd of A.D. 57. Now that's an important thing to kind of to keep in mind that this is halfway through the year of 57. That means we're nine years away from the Jewish revolt. The Jewish revolt begins in 66 and ends with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70. So those those political and religious undercurrents that are going to uh, erupt in another nine years are already on the scene. They're, they're already uh, very much a part of Jewish life. This is why there's so much intensity, so much hostility uh, taking place here. We read on the next day, this is the day after he's uh, arrested and rescued by the, um, by the Romans, uh, next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, the he here is talking about uh, the Kiliarch, Claudius Lysias. The next day, because he, that is the Kiliarch, the commander, wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews. Why are they accusing Paul? That's, that's his issue. The, the two he there's are, are a little bit ambiguous because he, the Kiliarch, Claudius Lysias, wanted to know for certain why he, that is Paul, was being accused by the Jews. He, Claudius, released him from his bonds. And what that means is he took, took the, the, the chains off and then he commanded the chief priests and all their counsel, and the word there is Sanhedrin. He, he calls for the Sanhedrin to come and appear at the uh, Mark Antony Fortress, at Antonio Fortress, um, and they would have uh, appeared, and he's going to have, a, um, have them come together uh, for the council to appear, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So they come and they're going to be appearing at um, at the uh, Mark Anthony barracks. Now normally the uh, Sanhedrin would meet in a uh, room off of the court of the Gentiles in the temple. This is a depiction of uh, that is given uh, in, a, in the illustration that comes out of the graphics that Logos is developing. Here in the lower right-hand corner, you see the uh, the temple. This is the holy place here, the large holy place, and it's surrounded by uh, the priest courtyard, and there are these various rooms, 
And one of these rooms was identified as the Chamber of Hewn Stone, and this is where the Sanhedrin met. And so this is their graphic depiction of the meeting of the Sanhedrin. There were uh, 70 members. Uh, they put 35 on each side, and the high priest sat up here. Now, this is not where Paul is. Paul is, they're, they're not in their standard meeting area. Here's another artistic uh, depiction of that room. They're meeting instead in the Mark Anthony barracks. Now, that's important uh, for one reason is because not meeting in the uh, their normal council meeting room, they're not in their normal uh, attire, they're not in their normal seating arrangement, and this may be why it appears that Paul is uncertain who the high priest is. That's We'll get into that when we get down into the uh, uh, fourth and fifth verse. So they come together, the chief priests and the Sanhedrin appear, and they bring Paul down to uh, set before him, and there's going to be a an exchange of of ideas. And Claudius Lysias, the Kiliarch, just he, he's out of his depth here because he's having to deal with a what he perceives to be a theological controversy among among the Jewish leadership, and he's trying to get to the heart of the matter because he wants to know, is this really a matter of Roman law? Has Paul broken the law, or is this just some internal theological squabble among the Jews? And so Paul opens with his initial statement that we read in verse 1, then Paul looking earnestly at the council. That tells us something about Paul's attitude. He's not uh, he's not cowering. He's not intimidated. Uh, he doesn't feel like he's out of place. He he stands with courage in front of the council and addresses them, and he makes his opening statement uh, <clears throat> that I, Paul, have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, a couple of things that we need to observe here. Does that mean that Paul lived his whole life in good conscience? And we could say that, that even when he was not a believer, as far as he understood truth, he was living in light of his conscience, even when he was arresting and killing uh, Christians. And there are some who, who take that view. Others would put this in the context. He said this before in chapter 21, or in, excuse me, in chapter 19, when he's talking to the Ephesian elders. He will say it again, and the implication would be that since he became a believer, since he uh, trusted the Lord on the road to Damascus, he has lived his life before the Lord in as strict an obedience to the Lord as he possibly could, and therefore there is no guilt in him uh, whatsoever. And so he addresses them, men and brethren, uh, in term, the brethren here does not refer to them as fellow believers in Christ, as that term brethren does in many places, but as fellow Jews. Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before the Lord to this, this day. And then something completely... Uh, um, uh, unexpected happens, and that is that the high priest commanded those who stood next to him to strike him on the mouth. This is an intense situation, and whether Ananias said something or whether he just signaled with his hand, uh, somebody stood up and just reached over and and just compl- and just 
backhanded Paul across across the mouth. Now, Ananias is the high priest. We ought to understand something about his his character. He served as a high priest from 47 until 59. 59's a kind of a key year here. Remember I said this was 57, so he's been high priest for 10 years. He's going to serve another two years. Interestingly, when we get into uh, the next section where Paul goes to uh, goes to um, Caesarea under the procurator Felix. Felix has been a procurator for about six or seven years, and he's only got about another year and a half to go, and then he's going to be replaced by Festus. So there's a, sh- a shift in administrations, both in terms of the high priest and in terms of the Roman procuratorship in the year uh, 59 and just before. So Ananias just has him slapped. Ananias had a, had a horrible character. He was a, a tyrant. He is, um, he was the son of Netabias and had been appointed by Herod of Chalcis, the brother of Herod Agrippa, to be the high priest in 47. He was, uh, notoriously unscrupulous. He was rapacious. He was known for, for stealing the, the sacrifices that were supposed to go to the support of the priests for his own service. He was uh, known for his greed and for his lust. The Babylonian Talmud accused him of being, quote, very stomach-oriented. That would be an idiom for the fact that he let his lust patterns drive his life. So he is uh, uh, worshiping his, his drives and his desires. He was deposed in A.D. 59, and then in 66, at the beginning of the Jewish rebellion, uh, the zealots trapped him uh, because of his, were chasing him because of his pro-Roman policy, and they trapped him in an aqueduct, and he was hiding there along with his uh, half-brother Hezekiah. And uh, according to uh, Josephus, he was slain by the uh, and killed by the zealot leader uh, Menachem because of his pro-Roman uh, policies. Now, according to Jewish tradition, a Jew could only strike another Jew in order to defend the honor of God. So only if blasphemy had had occurred, but blasphemy has not occurred at this point. What has happened is that in his self-righteousness, and, and self-righteousness always goes along with arrogance. Uh, Ananias had Paul, uh, had Paul slapped. And so this occurs in verse two. And then Paul, uh, immediately responds, uh, and maybe with a, with a touch of anger and impatience says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? I mean, Paul just goes right to the heart of the issue. You're breaking the law by having me struck, and yet you want to accuse me of having broken the law. You're just a hypocrite. You're a whitewashed wall, and the idea was that that a wall. this was a wall that had uh, problems and was uh, breaking down, and in order to hide the fact that it was already... Uh, uh, becoming weakened, it was just just a nice new paint job was put on it in order to hide the 
weaknesses and the flaws in the wall. In other words, this is very similar to the accusation Jesus had of the Pharisees where he called them whitewashed sepulchers or whitewashed tombstones that on the outside it looks clean and neat, it's got a fresh paint job, everything looks good, but it's hiding all of the decay, all of the death behind it, and so it's an expression for hypocrisy. And so Paul just comes right out and and points out that Ananias is a... uh, is a hypocrite, and that this will be revealed by God. And so he's pointing out that Ananias is violating both Jewish as well as Roman uh, Roman law. Then in verse uh, 4, we see the response from the high priest. Those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? And then in verse 5, Paul says, uh, Paul says, I do not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. In fact, what Paul is saying is you're right. If he's the, if he's the high priest, uh, he should not be treated with disrespect. Now, there are uh, several possible answers to what happened here, and we're not sure, I'm not sure which one it was. First of all, it's possible that Paul did not recognize Ananias as the high priest because Paul, as we know from some passages, had eye problems and his eyesight could have been failing. So some people think that he just didn't recognize Ananias. Remember, they're not in their, they're not in their high priestly, in, in the Sanhedrin chamber like this. So they, they may not have had, uh, they may have just all been sitting together and Ananias would not have been sitting separately, and Paul might not have uh, recognized him. I have, uh, I don't think that's the right answer because Paul, remember, from the time he was uh, 13 until the time he became a believer, which was probably uh, around in, in, somewhere in his mid 20s, so for at least 10 years, Paul is is living among all of the the Pharisees in Jerusalem, he would have known all of them, even though this is this is some uh, uh, 25 years later, uh, he would have grown up with them. He would have known who they were. And so I don't think that he would have uh, not known who Ananias was. Others have suggested that since he had not been in Jerusalem in a number of years and the high priesthood had changed several times, that he might not have been aware that Ananias was the high priest or who this was. Another possibility is that, that uh, as I suggested, since they weren't in their normal chambers, that there wasn't anything to signify. The high priest wasn't his high priestly garment, so that wouldn't have signified it. Um, I believe the best possibility is that Paul is using a little sarcasm here, a little sanctified sarcasm, and he is basically saying that... that um, you shouldn't speak. I didn't know he was a high priest because a high priest shouldn't act like that. So he's not qualified to be the high priest. So I'm uh, not uh, treating him as one. Uh, and then he stepped back from that and indicated that, well, since he's a high priest, I should not have spoken evil of him. But then in verse 6, Paul comes to a really, this just shows the presence of mind that he has and his understanding of his audience. And this is important for us whenever we're communicating with unbelievers. And it's too easy for us to get rattled. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this, but it's easy for us to get a little upset, a little angry, a little emotional. And the more emotional we get, the less we think. 
and we have to just relax and remain calm. And Paul uh, really understands the dynamics of the situation, and so he's going to use a ploy here to get these uh, accusers fighting with each other and to avoid the whole issue and remove himself from the equation. And, and in doing so, he also focuses on a point that's at the heart of the whole disagreement. The issue at the heart of the disagreement is their rejection of Jesus Christ. And the ultimate evidence, the ultimate sign of Jesus as the Messiah was the resurrection, as seen in the Gospel of John. And so Paul uses the resurrection and the belief in the resurrection of the dead as being a core issue in, first of all, it identifies Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and his conquest over death. But secondly, it's a matter of theological disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so as he looks at the at, at these who are accusing him, he sees that part of them are Sadducees, one part's Pharisees, and he says, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee. And it really struck me as I was reading that, that the present tense there, he doesn't say, I was a Pharisee, but he says, I am a Pharisee. And what he's doing is he's identifying himself with half of his audience and their one of their foundational theological beliefs, and that is that they believed in the resurrection of the dead. He says, I'm a son, a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am being judged. This is the fundamental issue. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. He doesn't bring Jesus into it, but that's the issue in identifying Jesus. And immediately an argument breaks out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees because the Sadducees don't believe in a future life. They don't believe in a resurrection. And that's why they are sad, you see. And so this, beca- and they don't believe in angels, and they don't believe in in um, in any kind of, of direct revelation from God via the angel of the Lord or via uh, some sort of individual being. Of course, this goes back to Paul's testimony that the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So the, the Sadducees would dismiss all of that out of hand. And so Paul just kind of throws this out there in the middle, and it distracts both sides, and they start fighting against each other instead of fighting against Paul. And so he uh, he wins in that sense because it creates this huge dissension between the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees until finally in verse 9, uh, the scribes and the, uh, the scribes of the Pharisees' party rose up and protested and said, "We find no evil in this man." So now he's got half of them saying, "We don't find fault with him. We find no evil with this man." But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let's not fight against God. So now he's winning some of them over to his side, at least to some degree, because they're fighting their uh, traditional enemy, the Sadducees. So a huge fight has developed, an argument. It's getting out of control. And I imagine the Romans, who don't know a thing about theology or, or Jewish belief, are just, just can't fathom what's going on. In verse 10 we read, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them. And that's the imagery there is of a uh, wild animal just ripping somebody apart. And so... Uh, they're going to, he's going to bring order. He's going to pull Paul out 
uh, lest he's torn in pieces by them. And he has the soldiers go down, and they pull him out, and they bring him back into the fortress, into the uh, inner area of the fortress Antonio. And now we get, an, in verse 11, we get another uh, <coughs> temporal marker, the following night. You know, so there was the next day, and then that day there's, there's uh, this argument. And then the following night, which is the night that came that day, according to the Jewish calendar, remember the calendar date would shift when the sun went down. So the following night would be the night coming up that, that, that evening. The Lord stood by Paul and said, Be of good cheer, uh, Paul, for... Uh, as you testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So here he has personal uh, confirmation and encouragement from the Lord who appeared to him. And so he's there for um, and the next day, and he's going to hear about this conspiracy against him. Now, this isn't the first conspiracy. This is about the fourth or fifth time a group of Jews have banded together to plot to take his life that we're told about in, in Acts. There's an indication in in 2 Corinthians that there may have been even more of these plots against his life, but we don't have uh, the specific details on those. So the next day, uh, some of the Jews who don't want to wait for justice, they want to remove this man, and I think this is part of the angelic conflict. I think that the text doesn't say it. I think too many people jump to demon possession, but I think there's clearly demonic opposition to the gospel and to Christian truth, and the and religion is one of Satan's favorite tools, and so this is being used, I think, within the context of the angelic conflict to stir up the Jews against him to try to destroy Paul. And so the, these Jews come together, and in their self-righteousness, they swear an oath that they're not going to eat or drink. They're going to take a Nazarene vow, as it seems, something like that, until they've killed Paul. Now, they didn't kill Paul. We know the end of the story. So they must have eventually figured out a way, and there were a number of ways within the Mosaic Law where you could, uh, if you decided not to fulfill your vow, you could buy your way out of it. And so uh, around 40 of them... Uh, bound themselves together under an oath and entered into this conspiracy to kill Paul. And they went then to the chief priests and elders. So you have several groups here. You have the chief priests and elders. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then you have these zealots who uh, seek to kill Paul. And so they come to them and inform the leadership that they have uh, bound themselves uh, under an oath to uh, to kill Paul. And so they've made this vow not to eat or drink until they do this. And so <clears throat> they went with, with the council, got the council's uh, approval, because they needed to get Paul out of the, the fortress. They needed to somehow get him out in the open. They couldn't go into the uh, uh, fortress Antonio to, to attack him. They needed to get him out into the streets and get him brought somewhere so that they could uh, ambush them. And knowing the, the strength of any Roman uh, cohort or Roman set of guards that were around Paul, that they would, ha- they would probably all lose their lives. So they hated Paul with such an intensity and a passion that all of them were willing to give their lives just to kill uh, the Apostle Paul. And uh, yet, for some reason... 
their plan became known to Paul's nephew. And we're not given any details of who he was, how he found out, uh, what group he was. He was probably associated with the chief priests and the elders in some way. And so he heard about what was being planned, and he went into the barracks and told Paul. In verse 17, Paul then called one of the centurions and told him, basically informed him a little bit, and said, you know, take this young man uh, to the Kiliarch, because he has something to tell him. So he was taken to the Kiliarch. In verse 18, we read about him coming to the commander, and um, the the uh, cohort goes to the commander, says, Paul uh, requested that I bring this young man to you. So the commander took him aside, asked him what was going on, and this is when he's informed about the conspiracy, that the Jews have come up with this plan to kill Paul, to ambush him and assassinate him, as he is taken out of the fortress Antonio and taken to either the temple or taken to some other location, the high priest's house or uh, Herod's palace or someplace like that, like they had taken the Lord on the night that before he was, uh, when he was arrested, they took him to Herod's palace, then they took him to the high priest's uh, residence in order to uh, have him tried, and then he's taken back over to Pilate's and moved around the city. So the, the same kind of thing is happening with, with Paul. And in verse um, 21 and following, the uh, high priest, recog- I mean, excuse me, the Kiliarchus, uh, Kiliarchus recognizes uh, how serious this is. And so he uh, calls uh, uh, on the young man to tell him uh, to leave, but don't tell anyone what has happened and what has transpired. And then in verse 23, we see exactly what he does to try to solve the, the situation. And what's remarkable is the extent to which he goes to protect the Apostle Paul. He's going to uh, surround Paul with 470 soldiers in order to make sure that the, none of the Jews are able to uh, pull off this conspiracy. 470 soldier, Roman soldiers, and so this was quite a force that uh, he brought together to take Paul to Caesarea, and it's going to take place that night. They're going to leave at 9 o'clock. They're going to go early before the other side has any opportunity, the Jewish side can have any opportunity uh, to respond to them. And so he pulls them together, and he pulls together two centurions to take prepare their men for the trip to Caesarea. And we read this in verse 23. He called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers... 70 horsemen, and uh, so you have 200 infantry, 70 cavalry, and 200 uh, spearmen or archers or spearmen, the artillery, uh, to go to Caesarea uh, at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to put Paul on. See, he wants Paul to have maneuverability so that if they're attacked, Paul can move and he can get out of the way and protect himself and he's not going to be trapped on foot. And then, uh, then he sent a letter and composed a letter uh, to Felix, the procurator. Now, uh, Felix is going to pay, play a significant role uh, here and through chapter 24. Uh, there are two uh, procurators we've, uh, that are mentioned here, Felix, and then he will be replaced by uh, Festus. Now, we know quite a bit about Felix 
from secular sources. His mother's name was Antonio. He was originally a slave. Uh, he grew up with the Emperor Claudius when they were when they were children, and his brother was also corrupt, and his name was Pallas, and he had a significant role to play within uh, uh, Roman history as well. But at some point, Felix did something that had brought him to the uh, attention and favor of uh, the Emperor Claudius, and he was uh, given a free status. And he served the Roman government in the, uh, in the uh, province of Syria, uh, prior to his procuratorship, and then um, and he became the eleventh procurator then of Judea. Judea was under the legate of Syria, and uh, just so we'll understand a question that comes up a little later on, uh, Tarsus, where Paul's from, is under a different procurator, but they're both under the legate of Syria. So later on, when uh, uh, Felix asks. Uh, Paul, where he's from, he's really trying to find out if he has jurisdiction over Paul or if he has to send Paul to someone else. And since he and um, the the procurator from from Tarsus are under the same same legature, he doesn't have to do that. In terms of his character, character, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus said that uh, he exercised the power of a king in being a tyrant, but he had the mind of a slave. He uh, had fallen in, he, he was a man who gave vent to all of his lust patterns. He had three wives. His third wife was Drusilla, the daughter of Agrippa I. Remember, Agrippa I was the one who proclaimed, had himself, the, the crowds were proclaiming him to be God, and God struck him dead uh, back in about Acts chapter 7 or 8. And then... Um, uh, so he, uh, she had been married to Azizus, who was the king of a small little province in Syria called uh, Emesa. Called but, uh, but when Felix met her, he enticed her to leave her husband and to come and to be his, his uh, third wife, which she did. She was uh, truly a Jewish princess, and uh, she's also the sister of Herod Agrippa the second, who is now the uh, 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 king over Judea, I mean, yeah, Judea, Perea, and, and Galilee. And so he was a, a tyrant. He was also guilty of uh, assassinating Jonathan, the high priest, uh, during this same period of time. Uh, the, pri- the, 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 the priesthood, the Jews hated him because he was so corrupt and uh, so filled filled with lust. So this is not a man that would have inspired a lot of confidence in terms of, of noble leadership. Um, Claudius Lysias sends this letter, which follows a typical pattern of, uh, of formal writing within the Roman Empire. We have examples of letters similar to this. It begins with an introduction in verse 26 to the most excellent governor, Felix. And then he gives a, um, a greeting. He describes Paul's arrest in verse 27, that this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. This would have violated Roman law. Uh, coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. So he identifies Paul as a Roman citizen. Uh, he's very succinct in this letter, gets all the important facts in there. Uh, verse 28, he describes 
what he has done in terms of his own investigation. I wanted to know the reason they accused him. I brought him before their counsel. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chained. So as far as his investigation goes, there's, there's no guilt on the part of Paul. And then he comes to his conclusion in verse, uh, <clears throat> in verse 30, when it was told to me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. And then he concludes with a farewell. So as the soldiers then come together and they took Paul, brought him that night to Antipatris. Now here's a map. Uh, here's Jerusalem here. They would have followed roughly this, this road, this red line here. Uh, this is still the same route. If you travel the highway from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, basically follows the same route. Remember, Tel Aviv was built and today completely surrounds ancient Joppa. So this is the, the area of Tel Aviv here. And then he would have, they would have left, gone out this way by Emmaus, which is right on that highway, uh, on the way to Tel Aviv, north to modern Lod, and then they would have headed north. This pretty much follows one of the major highways today that sort of goes around the outskirts of uh, Tel Aviv, and Antipatris is located uh, located here in um, uh, sort of a suburb now of Tel Aviv, and uh, it's... Um, a uh, small area located on a spring there. Uh, there's a modern town there, a modern city there. And then they, they spent the night there before they continued north to Caesarea Maritima up on the coast. And so this is, uh, this is a location where, uh, where Paul is, uh, where Paul is headed. Now, in uh, verse 32, we read, The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. So they believed they were out of danger by this time. And so they sent back the cavalry. And then they proceeded on to Caesarea where they delivered the letter to the governor and presented Paul to him. When the governor read it, he asked what province he was from. Paul would have said Tarsus and Cilicia. And he said, Well, I will hear, hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. Now, I wanted to show you a couple of pictures to understand this. This is a tremendous archaeological site in Israel at Caesarea Maritima. It's one of the first places when I take a tour group there, I'd like to go there first because it's large, it's well-preserved, well-developed. It's right on the Mediterranean and absolutely beautiful. It has a harbor. You see two uh, things that come out. You'll see this from the aerial. The one on the south is where Herod built his palace going out over the water. And this was where Paul would have been kept under house arrest. Just a beautiful, beautiful location. Herod the Great built Caesarea, named it for his patron uh, Augustus, and it is a an absolute work of uh, uh, architectural brilliance. He built it as a harbor, and because there was no natural harbor between Alexandria and up towards Tarsus, that nowhere on the on the west or excuse me eastern Mediterranean was there a, a harbor. And so he wanted this to be the major harbor uh, that would feed the eastern Mediterranean. 
Uh, it, it really came into its prominence later in the second century. There's a crusader castle, a crusader wall there that was built, of course, in the, in the Middle Ages during the crusader period. Uh, during our time of history in the first century, it's also significant because this is where the Jewish revolt began in A.D. 66, and several thousand Jews were killed by the Romans there, which, is, which started the whole uh, uh, conflagration that ended up destroying uh, uh, Israel and Jerusalem and, and the temple started here uh, in Caesarea. It was also a significant area where they, uh, in terms of the Bar Kokhba revolt, which took place in 135, and this was where Rabbi Akiva was, uh, uh, was executed. This gives you a, an overview of the, uh, looking at the aerial here, you see the Mediterranean in the foreground. This is the area here, which is where the palace was located, Along this area is where they had the uh, uh, chariot races, and uh, you have various remains of government buildings and offices behind that, and up this way. This was the main harbor uh, in this area here. Uh, just to give you a little closer look, um, they had the, the Hippodrome, as I said, was here. They have a large theater here where they have a lot of modern concerts today. Uh, the Her- Herod's Palace was located here. You have this uh, breakwater in here. Then you had another. This was the harbor, this area here. And uh, Crusader Castle was built here later on. And uh, and it was just a huge area. Probably uh, uh, 20, 25,000 people lived here at, at one point. It was a Roman, mostly a Roman, Samaritan, Je- uh, Jewish settlement, uh, ethnically mixed area. This is the remains of the Roman aqueduct that's on the north end of the... Uh, uh, of the of the town, this is what would bring fresh water in. Um, this is a depiction of the harbor itself, and the, as it's been reconstructed and drawn according to uh, what it would have looked like at Herod's time, where the ships would have come in, all of this area would have been protected from the sea, and you can see uh, dozens and dozens of ships that would have been uh, given birth inside this this harbor. One of the things archaeologically that's been discovered here is, number one, the palace and also an inscription that gives uh, gives us a historical in- inscription, historical evidence of the presence of Pontius Pilate and is one of the few things that, that documents Pontius Pilate as a procurator in Judea at that time. So this talks about the palace. It had an upper upper palace and a lower palace that was built out uh, over over the water. Uh, this is a shot that looks across the Hippodrome here, this far area here. This is the remains of the Crusader Castle. That was the area where the harbor was located. And then these columns here and off to the left is the area of the where uh, Herod's Palace was located. And this is uh, would have been a large rectangular pool that was inside the lower, uh, the lower palace. Uh, here's a uh, uh, monument explaining the inscription. Uh, this is all that remains of it. We can read something Tiberium, Caesar Tiberium, Pontius Pilate's name is mentioned as the prefect of Judea <clears throat> during the time up through the uh, about 30, I think it was through about 34, 35 it's hard to read here. Uh, you can make out the B E R I E 
U-M, Tiberium, and then here, uh, uh, Pilater, here's the P-I-L-A, here's the T-U, which looks like a V, and then this is very hard to pick out the procuratorship, but the uh, this is the uh, uh, this is housed in the Antiquities Museum in in uh, Jerusalem, Israel Antiquities Museum. So this is where Paul arrives. Now, what happens then is five days later, five days later, the Jews show up under with Ananias. They've put their case together. They've hired a slick, probably a Roman lawyer. His name's Tertullus. Not necessarily Roman, but it's a Latin name, so the indication is that, that they hired a good, slick, uh, Gentile jailhouse lawyer to, uh, argue their case, uh, before, uh, before, uh, Festus. And so they came, they gave evidence against Paul. Notice what happens. Verse 2, when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying that uh, though you uh, through you, he's notice how he's just fawning before uh, Festus. He, he wants to stroke him, uh, make him feel good. When Paul responds later on, Paul just says, uh, look at verse 10, inasmuch as I know that you've been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. He doesn't have any, uh, you know, he, he doesn't, uh, give, give, give him a lot of, uh, uh, praise. He doesn't try to stroke him, doesn't try to make him feel good. Uh, Paul just gets right to the heart of the issue where you have this, this, uh, fawning, uh, attitude by Tertullus. He goes on to say that, um, verse three, we accept it always in all places, most noble Felix with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, listen to our case. First of all, this man's a plague. He's a pestilence. He's a real problem. He's stirring everybody up. The term he uses there for plague or pestilence is just to incite, uh, 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 Felix here. He says not to be uh, he says this man's a plague, number one. Number two, he creates dissension among all the Jews uh, throughout the world. Uh, third, he says, and he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, that's another way in which they referred to the Christians because they followed Jesus. Jesus was from Nazareth. Uh, fourth, he says he tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Notice they, that all they're doing is presenting their accusation. They're not presenting any evidence. Notice who's missing. Two groups are missing. Number one, those uh, Ephesian Jews that originally created the problem by saying that Paul had come into the temple area and brought a Gentile inside the temple, they're not present at all. And the, the 40 conspirators aren't present. So neither one of those groups are, are present here. And they, they bring these charges against against um, Paul, and then in verse 7 brings in the commander Lysias. He came, and with great violence, notice how they're they're putting all the blame on the Romans, with great violence he he, uh, uh, took Paul out of our hands and commanding his accusers to come to you. And then he says, if you examine him yourself, you'll learn all of these things. And then the the Jews assented to that, and then... um, Felix gives Paul the opportunity to respond. Verse 10. 
And he starts off, he doesn't have any flattery. He just begins by telling, uh, telling his story. Uh, he acknowledges the, uh, the, the fact that Felix is the judge. He's been a judge for many years. And you can ascertain, number one, Paul says, I don't have time to stir up a conspiracy. I've only been here 12 days. You can check out the facts. I arrived here in Caesarea uh, 12 days ago, and then I went to Jerusalem. So you can check that out for yourself. Uh, he says, then, they didn't find me in the temple disputing with anyone. I, I wasn't arguing with anyone. I didn't stir anything up. I didn't incite the crowd, in, either in the synagogue or in the, in the city. They can't prove any of the things that they accuse me of. There's absolutely no evidence. They just brought accusations with no evidence. And then he says, uh, he does confess his guilt on one point, that he is a follower of Jesus, he, except he doesn't use the term Nazarene. He says he's a member of the way, which they call a sect. See, it's not something separate yet. It's just a subcategory of Judaism. I'm a follower of the way, which they call a sect. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. So I affirm their foundational religious books. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Notice he brings it right back to the key issue. The resurrection of the dead is what distinguishes Jesus and his claims to be a Messiah from everybody else, that he rose from the dead. And so Paul makes the issue God. He makes the issue Christ. He makes the issue that he is the one who rose from the dead and is the, the uh, hope for the just and the unjust. goes on to say in verse 16, this being so, I've always uh, strived to have a conscience without offense towards God and man. Notice this is like the third time we've seen him appeal to that. I am following strict guidelines in obedience to God. So he then says, after many years, I came bringing alms and offerings to the nation. This is the first time we've seen a mention of that, that we know that he was collecting uh, money from the churches in uh, Greece and in Asia Minor to bring back to support the believers in Jerusalem. And so this is the first time, though, that he's mentioned that. And he says, in the midst of which uh, some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, but I didn't have a mob, there was no tumult, there was no riot, I wasn't stirring anything up. They ought to have been here before you. See, they've made charges against me, but they didn't bring any witnesses. There's no evidence against me. So he's appealing to a legal principle for his case. said if they had that, they would have been here, and if they had found any wrongdoing in me, uh, they would have had the evidence brought against you. And verse 21, he concludes, he says, um, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged by you this day. He said, I'm guilty of two things. I believe in the resurrection of the dead, and I'm a follower of Jesus, a follower of the way. That's the only thing that I've got. Now, what we learn from this, and we'll get into this more next time, Felix already has an understanding of a, a better understanding of Christianity than the Romans soldiers did and that the Jews did. He understood this. And so he's able to make a little more informed decision. He's understanding what the dynamics are. And so uh, he's going to avoid it. And he's, in fact, is going to come for a private consult with Paul 
we'll get to that next time, with his wife, and there he's going to come under the conviction of the gospel. So we've covered this area in chapter 23 and part of 24 where we've seen Paul moved from Jerusalem, protected by God along the way. And how did he do it? By using the Roman soldiers, using the systems that were in place. Clearly, God could have protected Paul through miracles, but the way God works to preserve and protect us most of the time and in the church age is not through miracles, but is through the normal events of history, yet God is the one in control of all the issues. So no matter what opposition we face, no matter what the hostility may be, we know that if God is for us, no one can be against us, and he is going to preserve and protect us. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your providence, your authority, your your providential control, the details of our life, and the way in which you watch over us. That no matter what adversity we face in life, we know that there is no testing that comes into our life that is not common to men, but that you make a way to handle it, to escape it, not by avoiding it, but by giving, but through the promises and the principles of your word. We're able to trust in you, to rely upon you, and you preserve and protect us in those situations, just as you did the Apostle Paul. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us remember this as a key evidence of how you uh, watch over us, that when we find ourselves in difficult times, we can be reminded by God the Holy Spirit of this episode, and that we can think through our circumstances in terms of the pattern that's given here in the life of the Apostle Paul. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.